Hey, deal makers! Welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. I'm your host, Garrett Lynch. And as always, let's get ready to own it. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just starting out or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. This is the show my guest today went from pro snowboarder to money mogul and is now known as America's number one money mentor. But first, Page B Podcasting with Apple Podcasts said, if you're looking to dip your toes into the real estate investment pool, this podcast is a great place to start. I've gained an amazing amount of knowledge from the show, both from the hosts and guests. Every episode is something valuable to offer. If you guys find our podcast helpful and valuable, please leave us a positive review on iTunes. You could be one of the lucky reviews to get a shout out on a future episode. I want to talk about a first dealmaker highlight. James Furio closed on a 15 unit in Corvallis, Oregon, valued at 600000 Congrats, James. If you guys want to get involved in mentoring and do your own deals, reach out to us at themichaelblanc.com slash mentoring and talk to one of our mentors. You yourself could be a, a, the next first deal maker closing on your own $600,000 property. So what I want to talk about today just for a little bit is should you sell your deals right now? And if so, what are you in for? So if you own a deal right now and you're looking to sell, maybe you're scared about the markets because there's been a lot going on, a lot of that with the interest rates rising, you may be considering selling just to either get out of it or to maybe make a profit. And you can sell, but you're in for a lot. We were buying a deal from a big seller and they had seven deals under contract. We were the only one that closed. All the rest were past 60 days. Just to give you an idea. So it's a rocky terrain, a lot of retrades happening. So you get into a deal, the interest rates fly up and it's it hurts the deal metrics that the other person on the, on the other side has. And then they, they go and they ask you for the retrade in order to make it work. And if you don't, you have to go back to market and you lose time. So that's happening a lot. And it's causing a lot of problems in transacting. Debt is flying all over the place. You have to come to more equity. Equity is harder to raise. So those are all the things that are happening. So if you do go to sell a deal, just know it's a very rocky situation right now. Just even to pull off a trade, it's not easy. So luckily we we made it happen. We just we just purchased one and we're super excited about that deal because we got a huge discount on it. So we're gearing up for a winner on that one. But let me get into the introduction of our guest. Chris Noggle has built and owned 19 companies with his businesses being featured in Forbes, ABC, House Hunters, and his very own HGTV pilot in 2018. He's currently the founder of The Money School and a money mentor for The Money Multiplier. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So, Chris, you have a pretty interesting story in general. You've achieved a lot. And, and you know, one of the main things you, you focus on is helping people with their money, right? But tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started. Yeah. Well, I mean, I started when I was really young. I grew up in a lower middle class family. And, you know, mom raised me. It was a 
big struggle for her. But the one thing she always taught me is how to be a, a dreamer and how never to let go of that dream. And I remember I, I worked from 14 to 16 on various farms, just making money to put gas in the dirt bike. And then I got a big boy job at a restaurant and the restaurant owner treated me so badly, degraded me so badly that I literally became clinically depressed. And that's a tough thing for a 16 year old to really come to grips with it. You know, because prior to that, man, I was a ambitious, young skateboarding, snowboarding kid that just like loved life. And then all of a sudden I get into this job Every day I'm there, I'm degraded. I'm made to feel like I can do nothing right. And all of a sudden that trickles into everything else in my life. So I'll never forget the day I, I went into work. He started in on me and some things happened and I just screamed. I quit. But what I didn't know is that was the moment where I literally quit trading hours for dollars. I vowed on the drive home that I would never work for anybody else ever again. That's how bad it was. And I came home, but you know, I had a little bit of a drive to get to my mom's house where I was living. And I had to think of a game plan because I couldn't just tell mom I quit my first real job. I mean, that just isn't, that's not something you go home and brag to mom about. So I, I came up with a plan and I'd been thinking about this in school. And I said, mom, I quit my job, but I got a plan B. And that is I want to open a clothing line. I'm going to buy t-shirts from this place that my art teacher gave me. We're going to print them after school because Mr. Mahalski was my art teacher and he printed all the school shirts. And I'm like, I'm going to print shirts and it's going to be called Fat Clothing Company. So literally, this is 1992. I started my first company. Now, I know today we use the word entrepreneur, but you got to remember I was 16 back then. I was just starting a business and I was starting a business because I didn't want to work for anybody. I needed to make some money to make it to the the hill to snowboard and to buy my gear. That's pretty much all I cared about. And it was pretty cool how it began. It, we, it did start with those dozen long sleeve t-shirts. I sold them. My friends started saying, oh my God, you should do this design. They did give me a design and I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Let's, let's do this. And I'd make a deal with them. I'd say, okay, if I put your design on the shirt, you got to help me sell these. So I'd make two dozen shirts and all of a sudden, like what I'm doing at 16, not even knowing the first thing about running a business or any of this stuff, literally just trying to get by, I was creating my own sales team, which were all my buddies in school. And it was, I should have just called it like the backpack sales team or whatever, come up with a cool name. But we did, we just kept doing that and sold more and more and more. And then I had people in school like doing the art for the shirts. And I I was going to Joanne Fabrics, buying the, the designs and cutting them out and having my mom sew together samples and testing them on the hill and ripping the crotches out on snowboard pants and be like, nope, that didn't work. But that's how I started, man. It was 16 years old, 1992. I became an entrepreneur and I never looked back. I mean, I was selling my shirts to other shops when I was about 17 years old. I would be traveling to a contest out in New Hampshire, Maine, Vermont, because I'm I'm Buffalo, New York. And along the 90, which is the main drag to get you there, I mapped out in an atlas. Remember, we didn't have GPS or phones back then. So on an atlas, I mapped out where all the other shops were. I'd take my clothes, I'd sell them to these shops, and that's I had a nice little business going there. And I remember one day being at this shop called Hard Pack. And I don't remember the name of the guy, but he bought my clothes and he says to me, he says, Hey, you want to go riding? Cause he knew I was a good rider. And I'm like, Oh my God. Yeah. When do you want to go? He's like, let's go now. And I kind of did one of these things. Like I'm looking around the shop and I'm just thinking, dude, there's nobody else here. How is, how are we going to go riding right now? Who's going to run the shop? And I said that to him. I said, you know, do you have somebody coming in as you know, the next person coming in? He says, no, I'm just going to close the doors. Dude, something in my mind went poof. And I'm like, I got to have my own shop. 
So I put all my effort into creating my own store and it wasn't going to be fat clothing anymore. Fat clothing was going to be a brand I sold in my store. The name of the store was going to be fat man, P H A T M A N. And long story short, like everybody in my world, my father, my uncles, everybody I talked to told me I was stupid for this idea. It was the dumbest thing. I was never going to make it. I should, my dad said I should just go apply at Harrison radiator, which is the factory he worked at. And, you know, as if I should conform to his failed dreams, his failed reality and do what he complained about every day. And I said, no. And luckily, thank God in my life, kind of like the movie Rudy, you know, he had one person that believed in him, the janitor. Well, in my life, I had one person that believed in me and that was my mom, but my mom didn't have anything. She had the house. She got in the divorce, but she put her house on the line so that I could get that, that loan to open that shop. And in November, 1994, we opened our doors and literally like for the next God, better part of a decade, I was living a fantasy world. I was I went on to become a pro snowboarder. I had my shops and had all my friends that I skated and snowboarded with working with me. And it was perfect up until the day it wasn't. And that's, that's kind of how I got my start, man. Wow. So you, you just kind of bootstrapped it all the way there. I mean, that's, it's always tough to get people to believe in you when you have a crazy idea. And I definitely relate to that. Trying to figure out my, you know, I could never think I tried to do to go to corporate to see what it would be like on an internship. And I was like, you know, what's, what's the coolest company I could ever work for possibly. And I thought it was like MTV. And so I figured out how to land an internship with MTV in New York. Dude, that would was, be a cool place back. Like, it, I don't know what year yeah. that was, but that no, they, is yeah, a, it was a great idea when it was cool. Yeah. Like, like back, it was right around the time. Like I remember when I was actually doing my internship, it was my, when Michael Jackson passed away and it was like the craziest time to be there. Everyone was going nuts and it was still like, it was just past TRL, but I was like, man, this is cool. This, I think I want to be in entertainment, but let's go to like corporate. Like I use my sales background to get into the digital sales team. It was pretty cool walking in Times Square and all that. And then, but as cool as it was, it was still corporate. There was, you know, all kinds of, of hierarchies and politics you had to play and people making less than they should for their amazing ideas that they had. And that was what really, and in that moment, I was like, I can never work for someone. It's just, it's just never going to work. And so I, I relate to that. I'm curious with you, do you, do you think that entrepreneurs are, are born or do you think they're created? I think they're or created. Maybe- Absolutely. No question. They're, no one's born an entrepreneur. You create that. And let, let me transition that statement because this is really important. And I think your audience needs to hear this. You know, when, when you really think about, you know, if you really were to dig deep into that topic of let's not just talk entrepreneurs, but let's just talk success. Like what makes somebody successful and, and what's different about someone that's successful versus someone that's not. And, and we could just keep it that simple success versus not successful. And, you know, your audience can quantify that any way that they wish, but there's a lot of people that have done studies and there's one particular doctor who did an extensive study on this. And I don't know when it was a long time ago, probably back in like the thirties or forties. And he took a study of a hundred eager, optimistic 25 year olds. And he asked them all one question, are you going to be successful at the age of retirement? Now, when you're 25, that's kind of a stupid question to ask anybody because every 25 year old you could ever ask that question to, they're going to say, absolutely. Because they they anticipate a future where they're successful. Of course they do. Because at that point, you know, I would say anywhere up to 25, I might be a little younger today. 
we don't really know all the limitations that life puts on us. We don't know all the the negatives, you know, we're just eager. We're optimistic. We're out there chasing down what our dreams are. But getting back to that story, he took this, this study group and he asked them all and they said, yes, of course. But then they followed these 125 year olds all the way through their life until they were age 65. And yeah, obviously this is a long study, but they tracked the whole thing. And what they found at the end of it is exactly what you can see if you pull up social security statistics. He found that out of those 100 eager, optimistic 25-year-olds, that only five of them were successful and 95% were not. And, and if you really like listen to Earl Nightingale and the strangest secret in the world, you'll, you'll hear this, this study because this is where this comes from. And then you got to ask yourself one question. Well, why were only five of 100 of them successful? Like what, what did they do different? And it came down to one thing. Five of those 100 eager, optimistic 25-year-olds created something. They created their business. They created their, their financial future. They stopped listening to other people and they created something, a business. They were an entrepreneur that they created the vision and the dream for. So then you go to the other side of the coin, the 95 percenters, the 95 of them that were not successful at all. What did they do different? They conformed. They conformed to somebody else's failed reality. My father, no disrespect to my dad. I love my dad. But my dad, when I was young, you know, with this fat man idea, wanted me to conform to his life, which, which by all respect, you know, in, in the nicest way, was a failed reality. That's not what he dreamed of doing. My father didn't go through his life dreaming of working at Harrison Radiator on a line, pushing radiators down the line. I'm sorry, but that wasn't my dad's dream, you know, and, and anybody that you can look at that's in that kind of a reality, they didn't put, they put themselves there because they conformed to somebody else's failed plan, somebody else's failed dream, somebody else's failed vision. That's the difference, man. So when you come to entrepreneurs, are they created or born? They're, they're created a hundred percent, hundred percent. Wow. Yeah. You know, and I've heard, we interviewed Gino, Gino Wickman, who actually wrote a book yeah. on this. He thinks the opposite. He thinks that entrepreneurs are born and then obviously they need to do other certain things to succeed. And I've heard other people say they think it's both where it's, yeah, you there have might be suitable. some truth to that. All I know is I was like, like you, or that's all I could do. I thought once I had, once I knew that I could do it, I was like, you know what, let's, let's figure this out. I'll do whatever I got to do. I'll sleep on a couch to try to figure out this business that I don't know anything about which I did at one point I had, I had friends that would laugh at me and they'd call my room. The club. I, I used to sleep on a couch. I rented it for 200 a month downtown in Chicago. And then I would put all my clothes in the, the closet in the front, like the coat closet. And they called that my room. And that was like, <laughs> that was the best. <laughs> They're like, Hey, go to your room. Oh, <laughs> it's, man. It's the coat closet. <laughs> yeah. But, but anyways, man, so you, dude, you went from, from that, your your story, and you you built and owned nineteen companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually more now. That's yeah, that's a little old, but that's we can go with that. How do you do that? How do you, you own, just, build and own nineteen companies? That's that's like more than anyone can can fathom. I'm sure it's too many, and, and it's not by design. It's not like oh my god, I wanted nineteen companies, so I created nineteen companies. It's just over time, and I'm I'm 45 now. So over time, I've just had lots of visions, lots of dreams, and and I've just always gone for it. I've just, you know, as a pro snowboarder, you know, like you always had to just leap. You had to leap into the unknown. You had to just do things that would scare most people, and most people wouldn't take that leap. But as a pro athlete, you were doing that every day you were on the hill. 
no matter what fear hits you, no matter how much you didn't want to, man, you just had to, and you did. So in life and in business, I've just leaped. I, I've done that. And, you know, some of the businesses, well, many of the businesses didn't make it. Some of them were complete failures. Some of them were massive successes. And I've built and sold many, many companies. And I'm still building a bunch of companies right now that someday I will sell. It's just how I've done it. But man, to say it was a smooth path, you know, everybody wants to hear, oh, that must've been awesome. No, actually kind of like what we talked about offline, you know, with real estate. No, it's kind of sucked because those failures, as much as I would never change them today, because that's how I got where I'm at. That's how I learned everything is by failing. But when I was failing, when I was in that moment, dude, it was the worst period. You know, I was just talking about like, until it wasn't with my story about the the shops and the pro snowboarding. So dude, I, I, I was a pro rider till I was 34, but that whole period of time had many, many different paths that I took and the shops were great and I loved it. It was a lifestyle business, but I remember when the the dot-com recession hit, it was when the planes hit the towers. I, I'll never forget where I was. I was driving down the thruway to my new boutique shop that I just opened. And I'd never seen a recession. I heard about them, but I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know how it was going to impact me. Matter of fact, I was oblivious to it. And, and I can tell you and your audience that most of the people out there today, young entrepreneurs, you know, young men and women, anyone 36 years old or younger, and actually some would say it's 38, They've never felt the impacts of a recession. So that would have been just like I was when I was 22 at this very moment, driving down the thruway, listening to on the radio, planes hit the tower and the recession hit. And it brought me down to my knees, man. I, my businesses just were hemorrhaging money. We were down about 30%. I had to, I had to do what I vowed to never do again. I had to get a job. I thought, all right, I'm going to go to little Caesar's pizza which is where my best friend Mike worked. And I'm just going to, I'm going to deliver pizzas. That'll, I'll do that at night. It'll get me by. And I just want to get back to my, my perfect world that I've created my shops and my snowboarding. I don't want to deal with this crap, but I had to do it. Right. Sometimes when you're backed in the corner, you got to make hard decisions. So I put my resume in, it was one page just for the record. My resume fit on one page, just put things into perspective here. And Little Caesar said no, that they weren't hiring delivery drivers. Who knew that people don't eat as many pizzas during a recession? So <laughs> I put my resume out and you would never think that what happened next is even possible. And the only people that responded back to me, and there was three responses to my resume out of all of them, only three people responded and they were all Wall Street firms. Every one of them, big Wall Street firms. And I remember getting that, thinking to myself, probably the same thing you're thinking and your audience is thinking, what in the hell does Wall Street want to do with a young punk snowboard skateboard kid that wears a hoodie and a beanie every day? I had no idea. But I went to grandma and I said, grandma, I got to go to this interview and they need me to wear a suit. I need some help. So she hooked me up, got me my gray suit with my gray shirt, my black tie. Off I went and lo and behold... I was now in Wall Street and that would have been 2003 was the first year in Wall Street. And I spent 16 years in Wall Street and it was the strangest thing. You know, I didn't, didn't give up everything, but it was the, it was also a very critical piece to my story of the 19 companies that I've created because prior to me entering Wall Street, I worked in my store. Dude, I was the best at what I did. I, I could grip a skateboard better than all my employees. I could mount a snowboard better. I could wax a snowboard better. There's nobody that could sell, you know, fresh dive and Volcom shirts. Like I could, I'm being facetious here, but you get what I'm saying. Like 
I thought I was the man in my shops because that was my world. But now all of a sudden I'm not in my shops. I'm at, I'm in an office. I'm in a bullpen getting yelled at by the outside stockbrokers who said, you know, we need more calls. I didn't get yelled at much. They actually respected me because I was pretty good at it, but you get the drift and I'm not in my shop. So now I'm working on my business, not in my business. Garrett, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't think I could have ever made that transition without this event. So, you know, in life, they say everything happens for a reason. I don't think I could have ever put myself in this position where I was working on the business versus working in it until I had to because of circumstances. So I actually did really well on Wall Street. I was one of the, you know, I was the, the new org agent and rep of the year for the first two years. Then I went on to be the number three in the office. And here's how I did that. Because it's the same thing in business as it is in, in Wall Street or any occupation you are ever going to be in. I sat in that bullpen where my job was to pound the phone, send leads over to the guys in the big offices that had the fancy suits and all the BMWs and Mercedes. And they made all the money and I, I was pond scum. I mean, that's, I guess, what they call us in the movies. But what I watched is I watched these guys in the outside office, the top guys. I watched them show up at 8.39 in the morning. They'd leave for a two-hour lunch. And at 4.35, man, they couldn't get out the door fast enough. And I witnessed this. And I said, you know what? Man, if I want one of those offices, all I got to be willing to do is what they're unwilling to do. Now, I didn't have a girlfriend, man. I was a pro snowboard. I was single. I was pretty proud to say I was single the entire time. And I just went there and I, I came at 7.30 in the morning, pounded the, you know, I got all my paperwork done. During lunch, I pounded the phones and people answered because it was lunch break. And then after everybody left, I got in my car too, but instead of going home, I drove to my client's house and I saw them at their kitchen tables. That's all I did. And I did that consistently and persistently. I did what everyone else in that office was unwilling to do. And because of that, I became number three. And, and I didn't become number one because there was two guys ahead of me that were wicked good. It's one guy, Mark, and, and I can't remember the other guy, David, I think the other guy's name was. They were so freaking good. And they had a natural network. And I, I just never to be quite frank, could ever get past them. That was hundreds of thousands. They were, they were in the millions. But I did this while still maintaining a professional snowboarding career, while still maintaining my shops. So how did I get 19 companies? Man, I was multitasking every day. I had this company. I had my financial business, which I would take the money from the financial business more than I'd ever made owning businesses. And I would put it back into my business for marketing. And this is when I really started marketing. Up to this point, like, yeah, I'd take some marketing, but it was minor. But now... I'm making over, you know, into the hundreds of thousands as an advisor. I'm like, hey, I'm gonna, I don't need all this. I take it and I put it back in my business. We do these crazy parties. Dude, we did these, like, we would do these theme. This is back in the day of theme parties. And we would like close the shop down. We'd do a theme party at the shop and invite all of our customers in. And dude, it it, it was nuts. Like we'd have hundreds of people packed in the store and we'd sell tens of thousands of dollars in one night. And all I did is just had a freaking good time. And that's how I built those businesses and how I did it and had a lot of fun. And then I got into real estate 2006 and that was simple. Like my wealthiest clients as an advisor were in real estate. So when you see your wealthiest clients in real estate and they don't want to give you their money to invest in stocks, because that's how I got paid. I managed your money. They wouldn't give me their money. They're like, oh, you know, I like you, Chris. Let's let's do some life insurance. Let's set this up. Let's do this. I'm like, dude, you got, look at your account. You got $10 million. Like, can I just have a little bit to me? No, because it all went to real estate. And I witnessed this. And finally, one day I'm watching TV and a show comes on. And I don't know if you know who Doug Hopkins is, but this is back in his era. And 
he flipped the house in 23 minutes flat on TV and made 40 grand. Oh, total joking, but that's all I needed. <laughs> man. That's all I needed. I, and I, me and my friend, Mike, that same one at little Caesars, you know, we bought a house out in the country and I took loans from my 401k and took loans from my life insurance policies and bought the property. And that was my first flip and it was a disaster, but that's how I got started in real estate. If you want to work with a full-time syndicator to help you get up to speed faster, get your first deal done this year, and scale your portfolio so you can quit your job, then check out our mentoring program. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. It's the only program out there that actually guarantees results. That's right. We actually guarantee that you do your first deal in the first year. Otherwise, we'll keep working with you. And set up a, a strategy session call and explore whether it's right for you. It's themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. Wow. That's, that's incredible, man. And I'm curious, like, you know, just for listeners, like how do you leverage yourself enough to be able to run own and run that many companies? Like, what are what are you thinking? Is there, is there any kind of strategy behind how you're doing it? Is it just like, I see a need in this company. I'm going to go fill it. Are you going in the red to hire enough people to be able to scale up? I'm just, just curious. Well, yeah, I'm still pretty young at this point. You know, I'm in my mid twenties at about this point, I didn't really have too much of a strategy. I had learned bookkeeping. So I had a really good bookkeeping and accounting skills, but I'll tell you something leverage to me back then was just something, you know, I just, I put it all on the line every day, you know, and, and unfortunately in 2008, that almost bankrupt me because I had bought a strip mall, two buildings down from my main fat man shop. And I was going to convert it into a three unit strip mall, rent out two move my shop into 4,000 feet in the other. And that's right when the the great recession hit. So you want to talk about leverage. I was high, I was highly leveraged back in the dot-com era when I, when I did that. That's why I had to get a job. Luckily, you know, wall, <laughs> wall street didn't bail me out, but wall street was my bailout. Like I, I went to wall street and, and worked my tail off and that's how I made it through there. But I was highly leveraged there. I, if I didn't do that, I probably would have lost everything back then in 2003 Fast forward to 2008, I almost did lose everything. I was highly leveraged. You know, I was in huge amounts of debt, building the businesses. You know, we, we'd have good years, but we'd also have bad years or bad seasons. So you, you'd exhaust all the money. I didn't. Here's what I did do, though, Garrett, is I never lived an extravagant lifestyle at this point in time. You know, I, I had nice things. I always had used Audis. So I was, I thought I was hot shit because I had this fancy Audi, but it was a 120,000 mile car. So I never really lived a crazy ex exorbitant lifestyle. I lived at friends' houses, you know, we rented rooms kind of like you you were on a a couch or, or whatever. I was on a just tiny little bedroom that I'd rent out cuz I didn't have much of a need for things. I just wanted to build businesses. It was fun. And until 2008 hit, I never really thought too much about the leverage. I'm like more debt, more inventory, more debt, more stores and and I just kept doing that. And then 2008, man, I literally was one payment away from being bankrupt. And I was one payment away from being bankrupt with the absolute wrong person you could ever be bankrupt with. It was this group of hard money lenders. And I don't need to tell you too much. I live in Buffalo. There's some bad people everywhere, but there's some bad people here. And I, they were the only ones crazy enough to give me the money. And I think they were crazy enough because they knew, kid, you don't pay me. We'll just cut your damn legs off. Okay, man, I, I'll, I'll make sure I pay you. And that resulted my, I had a girlfriend at this point. She moved into my house that I had just bought from my uncle. And I remember I came home one night 
shortly after the great recession really sank in and I was, I was done. I knew I was exhausted. I was going to go bankrupt. And I just said to her, I said, Hey, sweetie, I, I need your help. She was, you know, Oh yeah, yeah. What can I do? And I said, well, I need your help paying the mortgage in this house and I need your help paying the utilities. And you remember Pete, my buddy, you know, the one that works at shop. Oh yeah, yeah, Pete. I said, well, he's going to move into that bedroom down the hall. And, and, you know, Jessica, you know, my friend from school, yeah, she's going to move into the bedroom upstairs as if the next line out of my mouth should have been any questions. And, you know, that's, that's how I made it through the great, great recession. And I squeaked by, I don't even, I look back, I don't even know how I did it, man. But that, that was a bad leverage example. And, and I got hit by that same problem in 2014 again, because in nine, 2009, I'd recovered a little bit enough and I just played a Warren Buffett, buy low. Everything was cheap. So I started buying apartment buildings, pennies on the dollar. I mean, I literally, yeah, you know, real estate well, and your audience probably does. So when you look at an apartment building, I had a pro forma that I created in 2009 and I just created it by watching and reading some books, watching videos and reading books. And my pro forma called for my optimum per door price was $15,000 a door. Just put that into in perspective. This is 2009, right after Great Recession. That was a thing. And I would pay up to 25,000, but at 25,000 a door, man, I was dissecting the deal. I was like, that garbage can's out of place, man. We got to we got to talk about that. But that was my model and I got up to 36 units from 2009 to 14 using leverage because remember, I just came out of almost being bankrupt. I still was in Wall Street. 2010, I had sold the stores. 2011, I sold the plaza. So now I had a little capital from that. So I used that. But I was heavily relying on banks and leverage and lines of credit to, to scale this quick You know, for a young man. And on 2014, everything was going great. 36 units. Took my 37th door to the bank to get financing. No big deal. And the bank said no. And I didn't know a thing about debt to income ratio. I didn't know how banks put you in a little square box and it just takes one thing and you're out of the box. And then the bank just says, nope, we're done. And I did that. And they froze my lines of credit. I had to sell all 36 of those properties. I spiraled out of control. At this point, I, I had leveraged the wrong way. I leveraged on real estate, which is actually not a bad place to leverage. But I'd also leveraged on buying my dream house with my my fiance at that time. She was my fiance. I think I had three Audis in the garage and, and I'd upgraded the Audis. They were a little nicer now. I had nicer things, designer suits instead of the store-bought ones. So, you know, you, you could see I'd racked up some credit card debt. And now all of a sudden when that one blow happened and the bank took my ability to get financing, it was over, man. It was just done. So when you ask, how did I handle it all? I, I guess the simple answer is back then I didn't do it so well, did I? But when I lost it all again and hit the worst period of time in my life in 2014 and 15, that's when I got I got the proper help. I got around the proper people. I stopped being a goofball and just, you know, spending money and trying to keep up with the other guys in the office. And, and I learned some things and that's, that's when my life really changed. It's when I stopped using leverage. I, I found ways, which, you know, we may or may not get into on how to get rid of all of my debt by changing one thing. And from 14 on, my life literally has been a straight line up. It really has. And it hasn't just been a straight line up because we've been in a bull market. It's been a straight line up because I have focused on building wealth over a long period of time and doing it very slowly and without leverage. Like I don't, I don't really use leverage anymore. Hmm. So, and, and tell us, tell us why you shifted into that and what, what is it? What do you mean by that? 
Yeah. So why did I shift in? Well, when you ride the roller coaster, like I just explained, where you have money and then it's all gone and you have money and it's all gone, you just get sick of riding the freaking roller coaster. So we'd been in real estate a little bit, but I didn't have huge success in it. And I remember I'd gone to this seminar and I listened to these two guys on stage. It was a real estate seminar. And the only reason I even went to the darn seminar is they were giving away an iPod shuffle to go. So I, I I just lost everything. I'm like, all right, well, I could use an iPod shuffle. So off I went. And Greg and Mike were up there and they start talking about money. Now, these are real estate guys, but they're talking about money. And I was the Wall Street guy because I was still in Wall Street at this time. And I'm perked up and I'm like, oh, they're talking about money. What, what can they know that I don't know? Well, the simple answer is everything they talked about was stuff I didn't know about. And, and just to put it in perspective, I was 14 years as a high-level advisor, number three at the company I was at, and was one of the major Fortune 100 company. You know, 51 Madison is where they were at in New York City. And when they got off the stage, I remember Greg, before he got off the stage, he said, the ultimate in real estate is being the bank. It's exactly what he said. The ultimate in real estate is being the bank. Now, at that time, I didn't know what it meant. To me, it meant, okay, you know, sweetie, who Larissa, who was my fiance at the time, we got to flip a lot of houses. So let's go. And we did. We started flipping houses. To date, I flipped 274 houses. And I can sincerely say I hated flip. I hated every one of them. They all were a pain <laughs> in the ass. But one thing I did learn as doing that is I started to figure this be the bank thing out. And how I learned it is the wrong way. I, I was borrowing money from people okay, to, to flip houses. And it was always, they were always making all the money and I, I'd make my little bit, but they were always making the majority and they didn't have to do any work. I was the one suffering doing the work. So this one guy, Mike, and I'll just hone in on him. This is where it all changed. He's a very wealthy guy. Incredibly. He's in Salt Lake city. Family was in real estate, multi-generational, and he had a show on A&E. So I just love the guy. He was such a down to earth, really cool guy. And I was in Salt Lake snowboarding and I, he took me out to lunch at, at Cheesecake Factory downtown. And I showed him a deal that I wanted him to fund. He said, no problem. And I just said to him, I said, so Mike, how do you lend all this money? You know, and I'm just thinking there's got to be something I don't know. And it, it was. And he says to me, he says, I lend from my, my private bank. And I'm like, Mike, dude, you got yourself a bank? Like I knew he was wealthy, but at this time when he said that, I'm like, you're that wealthy? Like, why are we at Cheesecake Factory? Why did we go to your bank, man? Like, we're let's just go see the bank. Come on, you got those dumb dumb suckers in there, just like every other bank. And he tells me, he tells me, I don't, I don't have a bank. I have a banking system that I set up. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? Now, before I tell you what this is, let me just tell you what he told me his banking system did. He made deposits of say, like instead of putting savings into a traditional bank, he would put his savings somewhere else in this other institution, another financial institution, which we'll get into. And he, he proceeded to tell me all the pros about it. He's like, yeah, I get a guaranteed interest rate on my money. I'm like, yeah, but the bank's got guaranteed interest. He's like, no, 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 like guaranteed fixed rate for the rest of my life. I'm like, wow, that's pretty sweet. I, and I'm in my mind, being an advisor, I'm like, what could this be? What pays a guaranteed interest rate for your entire life? I can get 5% locked for five years. I, but after that, it's variable. It's like, what, what does this guy got? And he's like, every year I get a dividend on my money. Oh, and all the money I make inside the account is tax-free. I'm like, oh, that must be a Roth. But wait, it can't be a Roth because he just told me he can put his money in and take it out immediately in the next 30 days when he needs it to lend. And I'm like, that's not a Roth. There's, what the... What in the world's this guy got? And he just goes on and on. And when I finally asked him, I said, what is this? Like, you got to teach me this. Like, I've never even heard of this. Mike, you know, I'm an advisor. And then he drops the bomb on me. Now, 
Garrett, I, I told you I was an advisor, but I was a, a money manager. Basically, I managed people's money for for a fee. You know, they pay me one and a half percent or one percent. I'd manage their money. So when he tells me this next thing, it, it was I, I was floored. He says, you know, he says, well, instead of putting my money in a traditional bank, I put my money in my own bank. And I said, what is your own bank? And he says, it's a specially designed and engineered whole life insurance policy. Instantly. I was like, well, pissed and laughing inside at him. I'm like, dude, somebody just bamboozled you. Nobody told you those things are overpriced, high commission pieces of crap. Like, I can't believe that's where you, I thought you were smarter than that, but I didn't say that to him, but that's what I'm thinking. And I say, Mike, whole life doesn't work that way. You can't put money in a whole life and immediately take it out. I, I'm an advisor. I've never seen anything even like that. And he leans into me and he says, if it doesn't work that way, how have I been doing it all these years? To be honest, I mean, I'm like, well, dude, you got a good point. Well, teach me, Mike, show me how you do this. He says, I can't. This guy Brent set me up with this system. And all I do is I work the system. I do what he says. I'm like, well, okay, introduce me to Brent. And he did. And then I remember calling Brent so excited about this thing. Want to learn this because I can't believe nobody ever told me about this. Like I have to have seen this, but I, I haven't. And Brent says, hey, all right, well, we can talk, but have you watched my 90-minute video? I said, I don't have time for a 90-minute video. What 90-minute video? Mike didn't tell me that. He's like, yeah, I got a 90-minute video on my website. Go and watch that. When you're done, hit me up, text me, and we'll set up a call. And I was pissed because I didn't want to watch a 90-minute video, but I did. And that's when <laughs> I kind of had an epiphany in my life. And after that 90-minute video, I realized that everything Mike was telling me was absolutely true. And I realized the simplicity of what I'd been missing all these years of how this policy was designed, but it wasn't even the policy. It was the process in which how the money is worked and used. It wasn't even the machine. The policy was nothing more than a conduit to put money in and take money out and then make it go to work. And by doing that, you make money twice. And I saw this all in a 90 minute video. And I'm just like, this is incredible. So I set my first policy up and it was small. I didn't have a ton of money back then because all my money was in real estate, but I did. And I started using it. And I kept building it and building it. And that was about a decade ago, right? So if you do the math, it's almost, it's almost 10 years ago that I did that. And that single-handedly applying what they call the infinite banking concept, which is a process, not a product, applying that in my life, learning it very well and being a good student of the concept and, and you know, basically using the process, I have single-handedly been able to build tremendous amounts of wealth. I've been able to understand and control all of my money in my household, in my family, and I make money twice on every dollar that I make. So if I, if I make a hundred bucks, I know how to make money twice on this instead of just once. And everything changed. Wow. It's amazing. Chris, you've got a, just a, a couple minutes left here, but tell me, Tell me a little bit about something you're you're excited about that you're working on right now. Yeah. So going with that banking system that I learned, eventually when I set that up, I didn't have a place to move all the money that I put through that system. So one day I'm sitting at a table with my friend, Steve, and, and me and Steve are just chatting. And I don't know, I think we were just talking about like the old days and snowboarding. And, and I was talking about money and you know how well, I got a bunch of money sitting around. I got to find somebody to lend this money to. And he says, oh, isn't that easy? I said, no, it's actually hard finding good borrowers, you know, which is why I got money because I can't find somebody to lend to. And I just started thinking and it hit me. And I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. There's two types of people in the world. There's people that have money and people that need money. And I said, 
they both have a problem. People that have money, which I was in that situation at that time, but I'd needed money previous. People that have money have a problem is, is they want to make more easy. And people that need money where I was when I was borrowing it, they have a problem too. Without the money, they can't make more. So I just said, that's a lot like a dating site. Men and women build a profile. They come in the middle, they chat, they go on a date, they live happily ever after or don't, but you get the drift. Like a single solitary place where all the people that you would want exist in, in a community. So I said, I just drew it on a napkin and I said, why doesn't this exist? It has to. And I went out there and I searched. There's got to be a place where there's private lenders like me, like individuals, and then borrowers, and they didn't exist. So I created it. I created the first dating site for money where it's truly just private investors, not institutions, no banks, no hedge funds, just individuals. And I, I said, all right, it's got to be like Tinder. You know, if I got my app and I want to find a deal, I'm just going to go swipe left through the deals. And when I find one I like, I swipe right. It connects me with the, the person. If I'm a borrower and I need money, I swipe left through the lenders and I swipe right when I find a, a lender that I want to talk to and communicate. There's so much more to it, but that was oh, a little over two and a half years ago, I came up with that idea. And today that platform called privatemoneyclub.com is, it's got over 4,200 members. I think there's transacted about 60 million. Actually, it's more than that now. I don't know. 60 to $100 million in deal flow is transacted through it. And that's where I lend all my money today. And that's all I do. I just became the bank, really became the bank. And that's probably what I'm most excited about building because we're just getting started in that thing. Wow. That's so cool. Chris, man, you have an amazing story. How can people reach you if they want to get a hold of you? My best way is my website, chrisnoggle.com, and just watch that same 90-minute video I watched way back then, and you'll learn all about what I talked about. And social media, I'm everywhere, just at the Chris Noggle. YouTube's my number one platform, but I'm not hard to find. Cool. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. I love that interview with Chris, so much so that we went a little bit longer than normal, but I really appreciated his insight. The guy is, is very intelligent. I really love what he said about it, his story about how the, out of 125 people, only five were successful. And it was because they created something and they they didn't conform to what other people had told them. Most people fail because of conformity. That's a huge and very powerful point. If you're out there and you're thinking about getting into business or getting into real estate and you listen to everyone else who hasn't done it, obviously that's going to make it a lot harder for you. And being around in proximity of people that have a, a similar mindset to where you want to go is, is very important. I'm in a group called EO and EO has a lot of like-minded individuals in it. And I love it because we, we all pump each other up. We're there to support each other and there's no no one telling me that I can't do these things. And granted, I'm, I'm past the, this point of worrying about that stuff. But if you're just getting started, you're just getting into it. Don't listen to the person telling you you can't do it because you definitely can. I like how he had really grinded it out. And, you know, he was, he said he was one payment away from going, going bankrupt. His whole story about how, you know, he just made this whole shop work. I think was really powerful and really the the whole guaranteed banking or lending. So the infinite banking that he talked about, I thought that was also a pretty cool concept. 
obviously in order to, to know more about it, they're going to have to go to his page to get the in-depth part of it. But I've heard about this, this before I've studied a little bit and it's, it's a cool thing. So guys, thanks for tuning into the show. I really appreciate your time listening. And if you really are interested in getting involved in a passive investment with the professionals in the industry, like ourselves, please reach out, out to us, nighthawkequity.com slash join. And you can get involved in a deal that we find. And we have a ton of leverage in the market so we can get the best deals because we see things before everyone else does. So if that's interesting to you, again, reach out to us, nighthawkequity.com slash join and set up a call with us. We'd love to talk to you. With that, guys, thank you so much once again, and we'll catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by checking out our Freedom Vault, where you can find free resources to help you with apartment building investing. Whether you're an active investor just starting out or looking to scale your syndication business or looking to invest passively, head over to themichaelblanc.com slash vault to gain access to our Freedom Vault.